Now that we got rid of them, we can talk about them. <laughs> oh, they heard that. I <laughs> know. Go on, go on downstairs. But do you remember when you were a kid and maybe one parent gave you an answer that you didn't like, and so you did the only thing that made any sense at all to you? You went to the other parent, didn't you? It's all right. Confession's good for the soul. If you didn't like it, what dad said, you go ask mom. Well, how did that work out for you? Or maybe do you remember that time when you were a teenager and both your parents gave you an answer you didn't like, only this time you didn't go ask someone else. You just ignored them and you went about doing it anyway. Well, that same sort of thing is what was happening here in the early church. It's hard to imagine, right? Decisions getting made by the church and then some group of people going behind their backs because they didn't like that decision. This is what a New Testament church was all about. Maybe it isn't all so great going back to being a New Testament church because this is what was going on. And it's got Paul all fired up in this letter, putting pen to paper, writing the letter we call Galatians. It's actually written to a whole group of churches in an area called Galatia back then, called Turkey today. And apparently these churches are right in the very center of this mess. You remember that story back in Acts 10 when Peter baptized a Roman centurion because the Holy Spirit fell upon him and his whole household and how it created a big mess, baptizing Gentiles? It actually had a, a whole list of scandalous problems. So the apostles and all the church leaders of the day, after interviewing Peter and figuring out what's going on, they decide they have to call a big council in Jerusalem together to figure out how to move forward with all this controversy. You can read all about it in Acts 15. But the question that they were wrestling with, it, it seems kind of boring and unrelatable to us. Do you have to get circumcised to be a Christian? Do you have to follow the food rules of the Bible to be a Christian? That seems a little trivial, right? But you have to understand that at the heart of those questions they're asking were actually the very same kinds of questions that we ask today. Essentially, what is asked of us? What is asked of us to be a faithful follower of Jesus? What does it actually mean to get baptized into Jesus's name, practically speaking? How should our life be different? What does God desire of us? And really, in all of that, even questions like, what is sort of our cultural Americanized version of Christianity that we just think of as Christianity? And what's actually at the very core of our Christianity that transcends our time and place? What is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian? It's really hard to know that. Those are some really important questions. And in their time, those questions centered around what the scriptures so clearly said to them. You must follow certain dietary restrictions because eating certain foods made you unclean. It was unholy. It was unnatural. It was not what God desired for you and for the world. It was against God's law. And number two, if you were a male, you needed to be circumcised. That needed to be the whole practice of your community. 
It, had, it was a sign of the covenant of God with God's people ever since God called Abraham way back in early pages of Genesis, and Abraham's descendants in that community of God's people had followed that ever since then. It was always this sign of their commitment to God. And think about that, thousands of years of the community of God practicing that. It's not something you just flippantly toss out the door. I think it's, it's sort of hard for us to really grasp how big of a deal it was, except to see how much the early church struggled over this. They had a council, and after that, they had all kinds of debate in that council, and they had prayers, and they told stories, and they struggled with their decisions. And once they finally got through that, they, they decided, we should not trouble Gentiles who are turning to God over these things. This is what the apostles said in Acts 15. Gentiles, they do need to develop certain moral standards. It's not like just anything goes, but maybe they don't need to follow the dietary laws and they don't have to get circumcised. So let it be written, so let it be done. That's what they declared. It was decided. Acts 15 in the Jerusalem. Problem over, right? Well, you know how it is if you don't like the answer. You just sort of ignore it. And that's exactly what some in the church were doing. They went around and they were still spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they were very determined to not let it get, quote, watered down by all those loose liberals and their low standards. Sure, anyone can get baptized, they might say, but if you want to be a serious Christian, if you want to be a true child of Abraham, and a follower of Jesus. If you want to really honor God with your life, then you need to follow through with what the scriptures say. Get circumcised. Don't eat unclean food. Don't pollute your body in that way. It does not honor God. It says so right here, chapter and verse. And that's exactly the kind of thing that was catching on there in those churches in Galatia, and not just there, really. It was happening all over the place in the early church. Even Peter, (laughs) Peter, who'd been the one that started the whole thing with these Gentiles by baptizing Cornelius, even Peter started waffling along the way. He tried eating with the Gentiles. He tried kind of letting those standards down, but then he was getting criticized for it, and more and more of his fellow Christians from Jerusalem started treating him like he was unclean. So you know, quietly without making too much of a fuss. He just sort of went back to eating with just the Jews. And, and well, you know how peer pressure is. Peter does it, so maybe some of the other Jewish Christians, they started doing that too. And then eventually, even Paul's partner, Barnabas, Paul's closest companion, Barnabas, starts doing the same thing. And remember what I've been saying all year about table fellowship, about eating together, how this is really profound stuff. The table is a very sacred place because the table is where Jesus would meet people in meaningful ways. The table is the place where the resurrected Jesus shows up again and again to his followers. The table, eating together, it's a place where we discover our common humanity. 
And it's a place where the spirit of Christ comes alive among us. Eating together is one of the most important practices of the church. It connects us with one another, and it connects us with the spirit of Jesus who came eating and drinking, Jesus says, remember? Only Peter and Barnabas and so many others are quietly no longer willing to eat with the Gentile Christians because of the flack they were getting about it. And it was just a really too messy. It was too complicated. It probably made them feel uncomfortable anyway. And they weren't really looking for all that conflict. So now they are back at the table eating only the right kinds of foods with the right kind of people. And this ticks Paul off. (laughs) He writes about it in that first part of the passage that Nancy read for us today. He calls Peter out in front of the entire church back in Antioch. And now he's writing about what happened to these Galatians. He said, I spoke up to Peter in front of them all. He says in Galatians 2.14, I said, if you, a Jew, are going to live like non-Jews when you're not being observed by all those watchdogs from Jerusalem, what right do you have to ask those non-Jews to start conforming to your Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem buddies? Stop being such a hypocrite pretty strong words. This is what Paul says, not in private, but says to Peter in front of everyone in the church in Antioch, and now he's even writing about it to this whole group of churches in Galatia because he's so ticked off that the church in his day, his fellow Christians, still cannot recognize the difference between what it means to follow Jesus to be baptized in Jesus' name, what it means to live in this life-giving relationship with God, which is, by the way, when he writes that word justification, that's what that word means, living in right relationship, in right relationship with God. They can't recognize the difference between that and all the religious traditions and practices and guidelines that help lead them toward that. You see, that's what the law always was. The law and the prophets, their practices and their customs. It was just there to lead them towards this other thing, just like it is for us. It's what the scriptures, that's all the scriptures are for us, you know. It's what they're there for. And that's what our spiritual disciplines, that's all they're there for. And that's what our traditional ethics That's what they are there for. And it's even what our theology is actually for and our practices in worship are actually for. None of those things in and of themselves are what we're after. I mean, yeah, they are really important and we do need them and we need to be teaching them to our children and to one another, but they are not the thing we are actually after. They are the traditions and teachings, and practices, and boundaries, and guidelines, and healing truths that lead us toward what we're actually after. What we're actually after is living in life-giving relationship with God. Discovering and living 
and this divine life that has been given to us and is all around us, and in living that out, becoming who God created us to be in relationship with the God who created us. That's the point. You know, this is actually what Paul discovers himself in his own great conversion story and journey. Remember, Paul, when he was Saul, he was already this deeply religious and passionate person. It's why he was persecuting the church in his former life, known as Saul. He wasn't going around persecuting them because he just liked hurting people or he was a bad guy. He was doing it because he he thought all those followers of Jesus were going to destroy their faith. And these new teachings and practices were going to corrupt everything because Paul, like so many people had confused the traditions and the scriptures and the theology with the actual aim of faith, living in right relationship with God. And so the Spirit of Christ knocked him off his horse that day when he was traveling to Damascus, and that Spirit of Christ blinded him with this great light in order to help him see what he couldn't see before, that the law and the prophets that they had been given, these customs and these practices, their scripture and their theology are all good and helpful and important, but they are not the point. Even the labels and the identities we take, the boundaries and the practices and the beliefs we hold They are important, but they're not the point. They have always been. The law always was a guide given as a gift, pointing this community into a life-giving relationship with their creator and with one another. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He writes in verse 19. Maybe some of you grew up memorizing that. It's through this law that I'm able to eventually die to this law so that I might live to God. In other words, way it's put sometimes, you have to know the rules really well before then you learn how to break them really well so that you can make beautiful music. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Only we have such a tendency to get all that mixed up, don't we? Either we kind of have this tendency to just, oh, well, let's just throw out that whole law then and, and live sort of flippantly, and we never learn it well. And that creates a whole lot of self-destruction and hurt of others. Or we learn it really well and we cling to it forever and we never get to where the point was. And that creates a lot of self-destruction and hurt for others. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. These are the words of someone who's learned what it means to be living in right relationship with God. But that confusion that we We see it happens all the time in our Christianity today. And this is what was happening in the church in Galatia. 
And it's why Paul is just so passionate. This is one of his most passionate letters, as he writes, because his entire life story and his whole journey has been oriented around this fundamental shift. But it is a shift that is really hard to navigate for everybody. And it's a shift that brings up all kinds of questions for us, questions about, well, what are we holding on to and what are we going to let go of? And Questions about identity and questions about discernment and questions about how do we know what's right and how do we know what's wrong. And so we're actually going to spend the next few weeks continuing to work through Paul's letter to Galatians because he addresses that so that we can learn what Paul has to say about those things so that we can hear what we need to hear as a community for us as a congregation but also so that we can hear what we need to hear as individuals in our personal lives who are longing to live in this meaningful life-giving relationship with God. You see, I kind of have a hunch that's why we keep showing up here, why we keep tuning in. That's why I do. Something in us just longs to live and life-giving relationship with this one who has created us and loves us and invites us into something more than just the smallness of our own life. That's why Paul is so passionately writing about this. And at the same time, I think it's what leads him, that deep longing, it's what leads him to write those really powerful words that Morgan led us in reading together today, those powerful words that have been memorized by thousands, millions of Christians over the last centuries. It's been written on walls and in people's journals over and over, and it's been written in people's hearts. These words that just sort of explode out of Galatians, like this profound, deep truth that it's all been pointing to. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ living in me. This life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. These are words of someone who's learned what it looks like, what it means, how it feels to live in right relationship with the the one who created him and this one who has called him and redeemed him. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer about me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ that's living in me. And and this whole life that I'm now living, I'm just living in faith and trust in this one who loves me. That's all. That's the gospel. That's the point. That's the whole thing. That is what's there, that beneath anything that we do or we don't do, beneath any labels that are important to us as we try to understand who we are and who we aren't, beneath anything that we believe or we don't believe or that we have questions about or doubts about, Beneath all of it is this invitation to ultimately let those things go so that it all is left as allowing the life of Christ to live itself in you and through you. And the only way to really do that is to keep coming back each day in surrender and trust and faith in the one who loved you to death. 
That's the only thing that's needed. Just living and surrender and love and trust in this one who loved you to death. Nothing else is needed. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And if you're at a point in your own journey where you say, you know, that, that's actually what I've been waiting for. That's actually what I need. Then reach out to me sometime this week and let's talk about what that might mean for you now. And, and we can pray together and ask that God would help us both live more and more and surrender of that. It's also what we are saying yes to again and again as we come to the table each week. When we break this bread and we pour this cup, we are remembering that one who loved us and gave himself for us. And then when we take the bread and drink the cup ourselves, we are actually uniting our body, our life, with the life of Christ so that it can live in us and through us. And we're letting everything else fall to a side, any other thing that's important to us fall to the side so that above all else, the life of Christ can live itself through us.